just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I am chatting to Finn Isles all about her journey to a diagnosis of hypermobile Alice Danlos Syndrome or HEDS. In this episode, Finn talks us through the diagnosis process, explains what on earth EDS is, the comorbidities and symptoms that have come along with this, and how medicinal cannabis has helped their symptoms. When you listen to this episode, you will get a real sense for just how much advocacy work, time, and research Finn has had to put into receiving the diagnoses, which I'm sure a lot of you listening at home will be able to resonate with. And just note, we do talk about some elements of the New Zealand healthcare system that may be different now with the reform or may not be applicable to where you are based. Welcome to That's So Chronic. Finn, welcome to That's So Chronic. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited. This is actually a dream. (gasps) Yeah, I love talking about myself. Oh, I love it. I really do. <laughs> and I'm excited to be talking about you today. Oh, it's very exciting. I'm also very much like intrigued to learn about someone who has a very much different condition to me too. Yeah. We relate over some things. Yeah. Yeah. And some things will be completely different. Completely different. I will blow your mind with some things that, you know, yeah. my body goes through. <laughs> and I love how you found the podcast as well. And when you messaged me and you were like, I was just listening on Spotify and I almost screamed when I heard a yes. New Zealand accent. <laughs> I was so, so happy. shocked. Because like, um, I mean, early days of being sick, you do so much research. Yeah. And so you, like I was on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, <laughs> literally everything just searching like hypermobile Alice Dillon syndrome, fibromyalgia, like every condition I had. And so like on Spotify, I thought, oh. I fall asleep to a podcast every night. Why don't yeah. I have a look and see if there's some episodes? And started like ramming them all. Because you have, what, four episodes on Alice Danlow Syndrome. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so it's a great little resource there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like you mentioned, hypermobile Alice Danlos Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Before COVID and when your health sort of really took over quite a lot of your life. You were working in the arts. Mm-hmm. You were producing comedy, burlesque, drag shows. You were also performing as a drag performer yeah, as was. well. And then would I be correct in saying that it was sort of around COVID time is when shit hit the fan? Absolutely. I mean, like uh, physically, mentally, financially, everything. I mean, it took a toll on everyone, obviously. Yeah. But like, I think my body really took the, you know, a huge toll. It was quite shocking, really, because like I thought I was pretty normal my entire life. I mean, um, looking back, uh, perspective is a funny thing. <laughs> um, looking back, I knew that something was very much wrong with me, but mm-hmm. I could never put my finger on what it was, and I, I honestly thought I was just like being a hysterical child for most of my life yeah and so once COVID came around and I I got COVID going into the first lockdown like literally the day we went into the lockdown I think I realized I had it like right at the beginning yeah wow so like alpha COVID yep like the right at the beginning yeah I've had COVID uh three times wow so yeah fully vaccinated (laughs) have you like collected the whole trio like um, alpha delta omicron yeah I've had three (laughs) three different strains that just keeps on 
hitting me. But yeah, um, COVID for me, well, the theory is it set off uh, mast cell activation syndrome. Yeah. Some pretty severe gastric issues, which are being investigated for gastroparesis or median accurate ligament syndrome, also mm-hmm. known as MELS. Also around the time, so the first diagnosis I got was a few months after the first lockdown, we came out of the first lockdown. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I was a full-time cafe manager, also doing drag pretty much full-time. Like, I was a busy bee. I would work, like, 70 hours a week. Yeah. And at one point, I had two full-time jobs and was studying full-time. Wow. And <laughs> it was just, like, I was a go, go, go person. Yeah. Like, I did not sleep, mm-hmm. you know, seven days a week I was working. And so going into this lockdown, um, had, you know, a month break, came out of it and went back to work and my body just couldn't deal with it. Yeah. I would be walking to work at 6am and I would be woken up by tradies on the street because I had passed out in the rain and no one was around to see what had happened or nothing. And that happened about three times before wow. I was like, oh, no, this is something serious yeah. going on. And um, I'll be running off to the bathroom every five minutes at work having to throw up and yeah. I have had migraines my entire life pretty much but they started getting really bad pretty much daily I could not start or finish a shift I yeah. would come into work yeah. work an hour and have to leave and it, it was not something a cafe manager could do no. so I ended up having to quit my job and during that year was pretty much where all of my health kind of you know went downhill yeah. and that's when the doctor's visit started um really ramping up and we started trying to figure out what was going on yeah, yeah. before we chat more about everything that sort of yes, kicked yes, off yes. during that time should we go all the way back to the beginning because Absolutely. a very lot of these a very good place to start birth mm-hmm. don't get birth. more beginning than yeah birth. <laughs> so like fresh out the womb I had a yeah. club foot and a heart murmur okay <laughs> So, like, I don't look back at this time and go, why didn't they know something was wrong? Because kids get born with a heart murmur and a club foot and nothing's wrong, you know? Um, There were no massive warning signs and Alice Anlos wasn't a hugely known about thing. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have any, you know, anger around that. What happened a bit later in my life, I do. Um, (laughs) So at about three years old, I was going through a pretty traumatic time Mm -hmm. um just family issues personal stuff and I was a pretty hysterical kid like I um I would classify it as like self-harming as a three-year-old so I would force myself to throw up I'd rip my hair out I'd be scratching at my skin I was so anxious I had the sleeping schedule of um about two hours a night for about two years straight my mum was wow really going through it at the time as you can imagine and she was a single parent too so it was like really hard on her having to just manage me at the time and so at the time they brought in a mental health nurse to kind of consult and see what was going on and basically all that came out of it was that they put me on this medication called Malaril okay it's now banned Uh, it got taken out of circulation about a year after I was on it and there's actually a oh my gosh what's it called a giant lawsuit I honestly don't know. Class action lawsuit. There There is a class action lawsuit uh, internationally about this medication because it gives people these massive heart conditions, which I have a heart condition, (laughs) so it's quite funny. Um, But at the time, this medication, Malaril, my worst enemy, it was actually only supposed to be given to elderly people with dementia who experienced psychosis. Okay. So for a three-year-old, definitely should not have been uh, prescribed in the slightest. And so I don't 
I'm a bit fuzzy on the timeline because mm-hmm. I, you know, I was three. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know at what point they took me off of it, but it was very, very brief. I have some doctors in the family and as soon as they found out that that was going on, they were like, you need to get your kid off this medication. Yeah. It's going to damage her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did. Uh, yeah. And it also caused things like uh, enamel hyperplasia, which I do, but also... EDS causes that so it could have been a few things but I was such a hysterical kid and now the going theory is that it wasn't any mental health problems going on I was in such severe pain from Ah. dislocating my joints and my sleeping issues and all this Mm -hmm. stuff going on with my body that I couldn't verbalize what was going on and so they just thought oh you've got a hysterical kid and so the first kind of record of like this kind of medical malpractice I don't know not necessarily medical practice, but just like me being neglected by the healthcare system, yeah. was one being put on this medication, mm-hmm. and then this letter I um, was that was sent to my mum from this mental health nurse saying, "You've got a very attention-seeking little girl in your uh, in your hands. Yeah. Uh, good luck. Essentially, like she's being dramatic. You need to ignore, you know, when she yeah. cries out and stuff like that." And so I looked at that when I found this piece of paper when I was 16, when I was trying to kind of investigate my health and my mental health a bit more. And I saw this and I was just like, there have been a few things hidden from me. And Mm -hmm. I think I need to ask some more questions of my family members. And then they would open up a bit more about what was going on. But like, from that point on, anxiety was a huge thing for me. That was probably one of the first kind of symptoms. Also very, very strong symptoms of ADHD. Yeah. And a bit of dyscalculia too. Mm-hmm. I'm like really great with English and I like excelled like top of my class in certain things and then maths I was bottom of the bottom, yeah. could not yeah. process it. It was just wildly frustrated. But I was a mess with school. Like yeah. <laughs> I screamed ADHD, you yeah. know. <laughs> so there was that. And then when I was eleven I started getting really, really bad migraines. Okay. And it got to this point where I would have to like call my mum and go, mum, migraine now. And she would know to come pick me yeah. up, race me home. And as soon as I got through the door, I'd run to the bathroom, throw up. Wow. And then as soon as I threw up, it'd go away. And oh. so it was almost like this weird pressure buildup. I have no yeah. idea what the science yeah. is. But like, as soon as I threw up, my my head would stop pounding. And I had aura and all these things going mm-hmm. on too. So they were like pretty strong migraines. And then... It would get to summer, and they'll be daily. As uh, soon as the weather got hot, it, it was daily. If yeah. I got a bit stressed, that would happen. If I ate certain foods, it would happen. Around my period, it would happen. Like yeah. they just kind of like you know beat me down from every mm-hmm. angle. Um, and then the migraines skipping forward a little bit, they got a lot worse when I was about twenty-one. Okay, and then the nausea thing. Uh, I would then, like, I would still get nauseous when I had a migraine, but if I threw up, it wouldn't go away. It would yeah. just get worse and worse and worse, and it was just chronic, and so yeah. um, we had to amp up the medication and everything, but that's a little migraine journey for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I was 16 is when pretty much the joint problems really started kicking in. So. And you didn't even have a diagnosis of EDS no, at this point, no. did you? Also, during this, like, my whole childhood, I was sick all the time. Yeah. Like, amoxicillin was my best friend. I was on antibiotics my entire <laughs> yeah. bloody childhood. I had tonsillitis about um, up to eight times a year, every year, until I was 13, and then they decided to take them out. Uh, bronchitis was also yeah. a great friend of mine. <laughs> Pneumonia, I've had four times. Wow. <laughs> like, it's been, you know, I, my immune system yeah. a bit shot. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and all of these things piling on top of each other 
are a bit interesting yeah um but separately they kind of make sense for a kid so it's kind of hard like I it's why I don't have a lot of anger about a late diagnosis just because I would have no clue either you know it's with hindsight looking back that you're like oh this was all puzzle pieces that have been put together now that we know something so yeah yeah so when I was 16 is when I first started going to the physio okay um my left kneecap would just slide off um and it would be excruciating uh we now know it's dislocation yeah but it was first the knee and they were a bit weirded out by it it just didn't make a lot whole lot of sense for like my lifestyle and everything would it go back in like if it it happened at school it would slide up and down like I could I can physically move it around (laughs) I can do it right now (laughs) like Oh my no, goodness. It's solid today, oh, I don't like, think that they would recommend that you do this yeah, no, for me not. right now. <laughs> like there are like solid days where it doesn't like to move and then okay. there are jelly days where I can yeah. like pick it up and move it around wow. and it's not good. <laughs> um but yeah, like um pretty much from sixteen onwards, like every year you could pick another section of my body to join the party. Okay. Yeah. So that's just when everything kinda of started getting a little bit worse and then yeah. but up until 21 I thought I was completely normal still yeah like I was going to ask were were you concerned that you had these party tricks that you could do with your body the party tricks thing for me because like the first time I ever heard about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome was actually watching Drag Race RuPaul's Ah. Drag Race um because Evie Oddly who was a contestant on I believe season eight question mark oh I'm a bad drag queen people will come at us in the comments yeah (laughs) oh I don't think it is season eight maybe nine I think it's nine I don't know but she has uh Alice Danlow syndrome and learned a little bit about it but of course because everyone's so different yeah I did not identify with her in the slightest you know she can do backflips and splits (laughs) and all this stuff and I'm not able to yeah but yeah I heard about that and then EDS wasn't even a uh, an idea to me until I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia and PTSD. Okay. Started going through the online community, started posting about some other symptoms I thought were just attributed to those two. Mm-hmm. And people were like, no, this sounds like not only hypermobile EDS, but all of the comorbidities you could possibly have. Yeah. So I started looking into it and I was like, oh, this is a bit different than what I actually thought EDS was. Mm-hmm took it to my GP and that's where the journey kind of began okay yeah how was the GP when you brought this information to them were they like willing Mm. to investigate well we were about a year and a half into investigating by this point okay so I had been diagnosed with fibro and PTSD and that's that's where the story ended for my GP pretty much oh okay she I mean fibromyalgia it's a very real disorder yeah it is a very very real condition but it also likes to be throw, like, uh, slapped on people with EDS because they don't really have any idea yeah. what's going on. And so I don't necessarily think I have it. I think I've got EDS. Yeah. But because it was the first thing they diagnosed, they're like, no, this has to be it. You it's know, kind of like the journey the stopped after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because um, fibro is also notoriously a condition that GPs like to slap on people with multiple chronic illnesses yep. that they just don't want to investigate yep. <laughs> um, which sucks yeah. <laughs> and it's not fair yeah but yeah so I had these two diagnoses and the stomach stuff was just really getting to me so after I had quit my job and all of that had happened I um, had these symptoms like I couldn't walk my yep. legs would shake wobble it was like Bambi like mm-hmm. I could not control my body I'd have intense, intense tremors, almost like seizures. Like I'm yeah. very certain they were seizures and they mm-hmm. probably should have taken them a bit seriously at the time because they don't really happen as much anymore. So it's quite hard to pinpoint. 
I'd get these insane migraines. I would uh, throw up daily up to 10 times a day for wow. a year and a half straight. I lost 30 kgs since ja- in, in under three months. And so, you, you can, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was getting pretty rough. I would spend about 10 hours a day in front of the toilet just like vomiting my guts out. Yeah. Um, it was miserable. Like I was very much malnourished, dehydrated all the time. And I even uh, called the called 111 at one point and was like, I need to get to the hospital. Like, I'm on week three of throwing up every liquid and solid. Yeah. I'm so unwell, I can't physically move. And I obviously picked the wrong time of year to call an ambulance because it was a week uh, on a Wednesday night, about 9 p.m. Yeah. And uh, the ambulance shows up and this guy looks at me and goes, do you realize you've called an ambulance? during a week and I was like uh, yeah I need it yeah please take me to the hospital yeah like I'm sick help yeah and he was like um I think you're just quite a bit anxious right now have you tried you know like dry salty snacks and I was like oh yeah I, I think not- I've fucking tried that. yeah I was like <laughs> I, I've not been able to stomach anything for like almost a month now sir like no that's yeah. not what's going on I need transport to a hospital and he yeah. was like um if you go to the hospital there will no- be no bed for you um, you'll be in a hallway for hours. I recommend you stay home. And I was like, you won't even listen to what's wrong with me yeah. right now. What do you mean? And so he sent me on my way with a letter that said, avoid self-harm and call 111 if you need assistance. And I just... Well, I needed assistance yeah. and I did call 111 and you didn't assist actually. Yeah. And this was like quite deep into a lot of doctor's appointments. And when you are so ill and you take a hit like that, it... Like your ability to fight and continue on and go through the healthcare system, it's zero. Yeah. Like when you deal with someone with such poor bedside manner, someone who is so not compassionate, and if you have to deal with these people like almost daily, you just can't keep fighting anymore. And yeah. so it was like a really, really long time before I tried to get any serious help. Mm-hmm. And I was basically just locked in my house, miserable. Like, in my early 20s, post-COVID, just going, oh, my God, this is going to be it for the rest of my life. Like, I'm going to be in a bed. I have to, like, think about what I'm going to do. Like, I don't don't know how to go about this. And so it took a couple months before I, like, actually braved the doctor again and could actually, like, communicate what was going on. Took them the note and said, I've got a very serious issue with my stomach. Like, I can't keep any fluids down nothing like I've, I've lost 30 kgs mm-hmm. and I was a big girl at the time I'd started off at 100 kgs and I'd gotten down to like 80 70 at this point and they basically said to me well you've got a bit more weight to lose before we can do anything about it um and the, the stomach thing was like the most um kind of immobilizing like the, yeah. m- the most debilitating symptom I had for a very very long time and it's also so frustrating not being able to eat. And yeah. like, the physical feeling of starvation is so painful. Yeah. Like I had no idea it could feel like that, but like the actual, like sitting in your bed, like just being in pain and then feeling so empty yeah. and like the fat literally burning off of you is painful. Like yeah. I can tell you that right now. And so I like tried to communicate this to my doctor and I had to really learn how to go about talking to healthcare professionals because Mm -hmm. at the beginning I was hysterical. I had no idea what was going on with me. I had no idea how to verbalize it. And then when I took a step back and started doing my own research on just like what could be going on, how do I explain explain my pain? How do I 
describe the feelings I feel because they're, they're feelings I've never felt before. Yeah. Like that's when they started kind of properly listening to me. Yeah, because it's a whole different language as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, especially because I had made a mention to my doctor a, a couple years prior that I thought I had ADHD and that I was interested in trying some medication to help with that and of course they immediately labeled me as a drug seeker Um, and so I had to really spell it out I know I'm in a lot of pain but I don't want any painkillers yeah like that's that's, not why I'm here yeah I just want to be better exactly I had to really go I'm interested in learning what is wrong with me so I can treat it and I can look after my body as best as I can and so I can work with what I've got I don't want any painkillers and so I've had to raw dog it for so long yeah like they I have nothing I don't even take Panadol or ibuprofen the one treatment I use is cannabis and I do have a prescription for medicinal cannabis because my doctor is like thankfully quite an open-minded person (laughs) um and I found that that was something that really worked for me but we can go into that a little bit you know down the line but yeah, I had to basically spell it out. Like, I don't want any pills. Yeah. And then they started listening to me because they realized I wasn't just trying to get drugs yeah. out of them. Yeah. And that's a, you know, very common experience yeah. with people, for people with EDS or kind of any pain condition, really, which sucks. It's not something we yeah. should have to, like, fight for when we're usually at our lowest anyway. Exactly. Which, yeah, it was really rough. But that's when they actually started listening to me a bit more. And, and so then, this is, like months and months, months. into these this symptoms. is like literally t- like two years worth of, wow. of like really no treatment or yeah. any real help mm-hmm. all the things that have helped me I've found on my own through other people with EDS like online support groups YouTube videos TED talks medical journals yeah. um like some genetic testing that I've kind of done stuff like that but it's not been anything that the New Zealand healthcare system (laughs) has helped me with I can tell you that for a damn fact and so you finally managed to get your GP to start acknowledging these symptoms I also had to change GPs quite a lot so like I, I mean that's a very common experience I'm not someone who likes to just like listen to a GP, I don't agree with what you're saying, I'm going to leave. I'm not like that, and I don't fight them. I like to, like, you know, test the waters. But it also, you can really quickly realise when a GP is actually willing to listen to you or if they've even got time for you in the first place. there's a vibe. There's a vibe. (laughs) And so I got that vibe about 20 times. Um, All I've had between therapists and doctors, I've had 20 since I was 15. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now, I mean, I'm really not set on who I'm with now either. Yeah. Like, they, aren't, they don't know anything. I have to take all my research to them mm-hmm. and inform them of what's going on. And then they do their own research, come back to me. And it's like tennis. It yeah. really is. <laughs> like, the be- the best support I've actually had is not even from a GP in Wellington. It's a nurse practitioner at yeah. Evolve. And she listened to me immediately and was just like, fantastic I remember getting off the call with her and just like crying yeah I mean that's such a common experience like getting help and then crying about it because yeah. you've got a ha- you've had a happy experience yeah which is ridiculous because it's ridiculous they're yeah. kind of few and far between a lot of the time like yeah. yeah the way that I got diagnosed with EDS I call it like a preliminary diagnosis because mm-hmm. you should be diagnosed by a rheumatologist yeah but I've been diagnosed by two different GPs so I kind of take that as like a we're here but yeah. we ne- it's, it's red tape you yeah, know? yeah. And so I, t- I basically, like, I think I made a post on Facebook or Reddit one day and was like, I have some, like, pretty severe gastric issues alongside the conditions that I already have and, like, spelled out all the things that were going wrong with me. 
and I had some responses that were like, yep, I've had the exact same Ah. thing. And I'm not saying you've got this, but have you investigated these conditions? And I was like, I remember glossing. I read it one day and I was like, no. And then (laughs) went back to about three months later and was just like, I should look into this. And so did a bit of a Google and was just like pretty unsure, but I pulled up the diagnostic criteria, went through it and just went, oh, okay. Um, I actually do fit this quite accurately. Yeah. So then yeah. booked in with my GP, took it along and was like, could you just do this for me? You're, you're the expert. Yeah. And they took me through it and they were like, yeah, no, this is it. <gasps> yeah, this is it. No, you've, you've, this is, you've yeah, found it. This is it. Yeah. And my GP even like sat me down and I was horrified. She said, thank you so much for doing this. I guarantee we would never have <sighs> like arrived yeah. to this yeah. if you had not done your own research. And like, I always like to give a little disclaimer to my doctor being like, I know your your like biggest pet peeve is someone coming in and saying, I've done some research. (laughs) But if you present it in the right way, Mm -hmm. you know how to research properly. Yeah. It can and and you know how to communicate that well enough. It's the biggest tool you have in your arsenal as your biggest personal advocate. Yeah. I saw something on Instagram today actually when I was scrolling through and someone wrote like it's because the system is failing that people yeah. have to do their own research. This person that I was looking at on Instagram, like they're based in the States. And so with insurance and all of that, like, of course, they need, we need these support networks and people to be doing their own research. Otherwise, things just don't happen. Exactly. Because um, I think it's the Alice Dunlow Society that recommends this. But if you have EDS, supposedly, you should have like a healthcare team around you of about yeah. seven people. You get your cardiologist, yeah. your rheumatologist, <laughs> your psychologist, you know, all um, everything. But the way that the healthcare system is in New Zealand, especially with the DHBs, the referral process, and how your GP is your kind of it's health your first, manager. Yeah, point your of first, call. Yeah. yeah. And also just the fact that we're so underfunded, um, th- there's not enough people in healthcare, all of these issues. It's pretty much the perfect shitstorm for yeah. people with chronic illnesses. Yeah. And you think that the healthcare system is there to support you. And honestly, before, um, because it took, you know, 22 years before I got diagnosed with all these things and yeah. before I realized I was actually disabled, yeah. I had this kind of experience of being able-bodied for yeah. a long time, or yeah. like, you know, air quote, able-bodied, always knowing something was wrong with me, but being treated like a <laughs> quote-unquote yeah. normal person. So like, I thought going into it that People with disabilities were so taken care of in terms yeah. of the healthcare system. <laughs> Boy, was I yeah. wrong. Um, no, I. you are going to be treated so much better if you have a cut on your finger or you have a cold. Yeah, than like if these you acute have, things. Yeah, um, it's like that meme where it's like the, the, the kid that's going underwater. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you know yeah I know one. the one, yeah. Yeah, it's and like, it's like high five. I got your test results back, and they're normal. Yeah, it's like no. Yeah, there's just so little support, and there's such a postcode lottery too of like the the yeah. quality of care or even full stop access to care. Yeah, with EDS in particular, there is one rheumatologist in the country who like is known as the EDS specialist. Mm-hmm. I did my own little research as I do, and I found that when before I was diagnosed, it was a New Zealand Herald article that said that there were about. 300 people in New Zealand with EDS. Mm-hmm. And this was in like 2017, I think. And then two years after my uh, my diagnosis, they're now estimating there to be over 5,000. Wow. And that's quite a jump for like such a small country yeah. and such a quote-unquote rare disorder. But of course, it's inheritable. It can um, mutate, yeah. you know, 
you don't have to inherit it. Yeah. So of course there's going to be like quite a lot of people who actually do have this, and there's such uh, such a spectrum of ability um, and like severity that it's so hard to really estimate yeah. how many people have it. But there's one rheumatologist, Dr. Fraser Burling, and he has a two-year waiting list. He's booked. Wow. In, uh, he's based out of Auckland, but he's also the only person in New Zealand who offers the only therapy for EDS, which is prolotherapy. Okay. Which is basically like injecting saline into your joints for mm-hmm. extra cushioning and support and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But you really can't do anything, and a lot of rheumatologists are also now saying they won't see people with EDS, um, which is just. Uh, so mind-boggling yeah. to me because it's your first port of call for someone with EDS. Yeah. Like, that's meant to be the person you see. Yeah. It's like, like it, it just blows my mind. It's like showing up to the doctor and going, my arm's broken, and then going, no, it's not, and we can't deal with it. Yeah, like... Like, what do you do? It's like radiology being like, we will not see any broken arms. Yeah, it's like, We're what? not doing that anymore. <laughs> We're not doing it. We're not doing it. So it's just so frustrating. I mean, like, I... I'm in Wellington, for God's sake, like mm-hmm. the capital city, yeah. and I can't get anything. So I really hate to think what the rural communities are like in New Zealand yeah. too. Like, there's really nothing you can do, not even private. Like, the I have been denied gastroenterologist appointments for two years now. They will not see me. They know they should, but yeah. they cannot fit me in, and their priorities are just elsewhere mm-hmm. and because it is a chronic illness and it's not super life-threatening supposedly it can you know cause a lot of other things but it's inherently not life-threatening so they don't really want to take it seriously yeah which sucks but it's and it's also driven me overseas um yeah. I'm going to be moving to Melbourne uh early next year mainly for healthcare. yeah just so I can have access to that and I'm very happy I'm in a position to be able to do so now because yeah. I know for a damn fact a year ago I would not be able to do Mm -hmm. that just physically speaking but also financially you have to be I didn't realize this and it came from a place of ignorance but also of course you won't know this until you experience it just how expensive it is to be sick yeah like think about the layers of that like you can't work and everything you spend money on is going back to making you healthy yeah you you cannot take a break yeah like it's like financial terror uh, mental terror it's it's so alienating and it's it's really hard to get through and so I'm now on this point where like I found a job that I can do mm-hmm. and I'm financially at this point where I'm now able to look after myself yeah. but you really can't expect us of the whole population of people no. who have EDS it's impossible yeah it sucks yeah. yeah no EDS would be a lot easier if we had the support we needed but it's just not there and so Melbourne mm-hmm it's going to be a lot easier to get in with, like, I'm imagining with EDS, a lot of, like, genetic testing type yeah, stuff. Is I that possible? I actually found a clinic there called the Hypermobility Clinic, <gasps> and it's basically a whole medical center for people with EDS. Oh, my God, you're kidding. I know. I found that out, and I was just over the moon. Like, yeah. Um, I also have, like, POTS and, you know, pretty much every comorbidity yeah. of EDS you can think of. But one thing that I could really benefit from is regular IV therapy, mm-hmm. just having fluids every so often. Yeah. You are supposed to be able to access that in New Zealand. A uh, quick call out to the Capital and Coast DHB. I think I've shown up to the emergency room once when I was really, really bad. I do not like to go to the doctor. I do no. not like to go to the hospitals. I really try and avoid it and only go when it's... Speaking of... Yeah. <laughs> um, when it's super serious. And so I went and tried to get fluids once and they were like, we can't give you fluids. And I was like, what do you mean? I have a, I, I have a con- I, I 
handed them the research and was like, yeah. it's clearly just what I need right now. It's for the pots. I need some hydration. I've been throwing up for six months, please. Um, and they were like, no. And they couldn't, I tried to get around it and be like, is there any way that I can regularly get fluids, like outpatient, you know? Yeah. Um, they couldn't do it. But of course, Melbourne has that party population where they have IV clinics for people oh, with yeah. hangovers. <laughs> um, but it's also a great medical tool for people with POTS who can access that and yeah. like join an IV clinic and get regular infusions, which is just oh, such a good idea. Yeah. And I wish we had that sort of stuff, but it's yeah. just like... There are just so many better options for mm-hmm. me there. Yeah. Yeah. Financially, medically, everything. It's just yeah. Me. Before we carry on with the interview, I wanted to quickly jump in and say this episode was made possible thanks to the generosity of my friends over at Colossal. Colossal is an award-winning production company specialising in circus, performance and design, creating diverse, innovative, world-class experiences. They kindly gifted me their Squid Studio to record this episode in, and as an independent podcast producer, all of these little moments really add up and help the work here at that That's So Chronic continue. So on that note, if you would also like to support That's So Chronic, I always appreciate a little five-star rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the interview. So after a few years of these symptoms, finally getting a diagnosis, a name Mm -hmm. to what's happening for you, as well as names for some of the comorbidities that have also come along with it, how would you describe what hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is if someone's listening and they've never heard of it before? Oh, I'll give you the spiel. <laughs> so it's a connective tissue disorder, mm-hmm. but it affects quite a bit. So it's basically a mutation on your collagen. Mm-hmm. I like to say, if you look at a healthy person's collagen, it's nice, strong, you know, it's there. If you look at someone with EDS, it's uh, really fragile, it's porous, it's about, I think, 30% of the density okay. of someone with, you know, without EDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is collagen is all over your body. Right. So it can cause so many different problems, like collagens in the veins that your blood travels yeah. in. It holds your organs in place, yeah. and it's also in your joints. So a lot of people like to say, because, oh, collagen, that's your skin and your joints. Yeah. People think, oh, you're bendy and you've got soft skin. Yeah. Absolutely not the end of it, though. Yeah. It's everywhere. It mm-hmm. can affect everything. It just it makes you a puppet, a rag doll. It really does. Mm-hmm. So it has a bunch of comorbidities. Um, There's mast cell activation syndrome, which basically means that my body likes to send off false anaphylaxis sometimes. Yeah. It likes to think I'm allergic to things, but I might not be. So like... For example, like a few months ago, rosemary was really doing it for me wow. for a while. So the smell of fresh rosemary would yeah. just send me off into like vomiting. Mm-hmm. But I love rosemary. I eat it. Um, yeah. So like I just had to avoid that for a while. I was at a cafe like a couple of days ago and they had rosemary as mm-hmm. like a, in a vase, like as a centerpiece on the table. Yeah. No, I would have to walk out. I could yeah. not go there. So it likes to do that. And then we've got POTS, ost- uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. That's a diagnosis that I actually got. And then it was taken off of me by another healthcare professional and then given back to me by another. Okay. So that's kind of up in the air. Yep. <laughs> I definitely think I do have it. Yeah. And I've had the diagnosis, so I do like to very much stay with the yep. Eye of Pots storyline. Yeah. Basically that um, it makes exercise extremely hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it really affects me in terms of temperature changes. Showering yep. is a nightmare. I yep. sit in the shower. 
and sometimes pass out. Like it causes a whole lot of issues, mm-hmm. but um, that's like a heart condition that uh, adrenaline affects it, stress, yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah. And then what else have we got? Oh, the stomach issues, <laughs> gastroparesis. Um, so they either theorize that part of my stomach is paralyzed. Yep. Or that it's median accurate ligament syndrome, which basically means that a ligament that crosses your bowel in a certain way is in the wrong position, so it cuts off blood flow and affects your like motility, I guess. But yeah, so we'll figure that out. But yeah, um, and then we're also investigating this osteogenesis imperfecta situation. Okay, <laughs> that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the thing about EDS that really is quite interesting is that it's almost like it the research they've they've done on EDS has happened in my lifetime. Yeah. Like every year they find out something different. And so at the moment they're trying to find the candidate gene for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome because it's the only type of EDS that you can't diagnose genetically. Ah, okay. Um, So that's the type that most people with EDS get. Um, It's like the default type of like, if we can't find anything genetically, this is probably it. Yeah. Yeah. So they they think they've found the gene. So Mm -hmm. they're going through the... The, you know the motions of trying to confirm that but mm, going back a little bit so I love my genealogy right um, I did an ancestry DNA test in 2017 and downloaded my raw genetic code because I'm a bit of a nerd yeah and just was wondering around like what I could do with it you know what sort of things I could um, find out with this information and I had, uh, I didn't even do a health test. I wasn't interested in mm-hmm. it. I just, I didn't think anything was wrong with me at yeah. the time. So I didn't really look into it. And then after all this health stuff um, started happening and I was doing research, I was like, I wonder if I could use this genetic yeah. data and see if I can just find anything. Mm-hmm. And so bearing in mind with a saliva test, like the ancestry tests do, they're way less accurate than a blood yeah. test. And yeah. it's really not a diagnostic tool. Yeah. But it's interesting and it's something that you can take to your GP as like if you have concerns, you know. And so I took my genetic code and I ran it through Prometheus, which is like a medical journal database where it matches your genetic code to it being mentioned in journal articles Mm -hmm. for different disorders, genetic conditions and stuff like that. So I ran it through that. It was like $12. Great investment in my opinion. And it came up that I had about uh, six or seven markers for EDS. Mm-hmm. And one of them in particular was from a journal article from about 2021, I think, that mentioned osteogenesis imperfecta mm-hmm. in this kind of hybridization of EDS. Yeah. And it was the first kind of mention of it. So it's not one of the, the subtypes mm-hmm. of EDS, but who knows? It might be in a yeah. few years. It uh, might be the 14th type. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta is brittle bone disorder and... Uh, I was thinking about that and looking into it and it made a bit of sense in terms of my family history and my own personal history. So my mum, for example, and it's all inheritable conditions, so it's always nice to look at your parents. My mum was diagnosed with juvenile osteoporosis when she was 16 and Mm -hmm. it's pretty bad. Yeah. Like I have broken three of her bones. (gasps) All wow. by the age of five years old. Yeah. Um, I accidentally stepped on her foot when I was three years old and I shattered it. Wow. Um, she took my baby carrier out of the car one day and broke her back. Yeah. Like the tiniest little things yeah. can break her. And she is very much similar to me health wise mm-hmm. with certain things. And so is my grandma. So we've kind of traced it up this maternal yeah. line. Yeah. But I was thinking about my mom 
thinking about my own body and I've broken a few bones but I didn't think it would it's really made sense to me yeah and then one of the big things for osteogenesis and perfecta is uh your dental problems yeah and it's also a big thing for EDS too mm-hmm. I have huge dental problems like yeah. um I didn't think I did I thought my teeth were really really normal and then I like started talking with my friends after going back to, um, coming back from the dentist and <laughs> yeah. primary school and they'll just be like what yeah that's, that's not horrifying. my reality <laughs> So it was stuff like, um, I've had two teeth fall out naturally, but I've had 16 or 17 pulled out by the dentist. Wow. Bearing in mind, with EDS, you also have massive issues with anesthesia. Okay. So I would get several numbing shots, and then I'd, I'd start, you know, ramming in to, like, rip my teeth out. And I'd be like, stop, stop, I can feel everything. Yeah. I, can, I can feel you ripping my teeth out. And this was from a really young age. Um, like the first time I had teeth pulled out was when I was eight. So it happened then and I was mm-hmm. like, I can feel it. I'm, I'm in pain, stop. Like give me more numbing shots. And they'd go through like six or seven on a tooth and just go, you should really not be feeling anything right now. Yeah. And now in hindsight, it's like, oh, EDS really messes with your ability to process anesthesia. Yeah. So that made sense. I've also had like, 14 fillings and mm-hmm. I've taken like my, my dentist even says I take perfect care of my teeth yeah something's wrong yeah I have no yeah. natural enamel okay and my teeth also chip and break off all the time so I'm gonna have to have implants replacing all of my teeth at a certain point mm-hmm. I've also got like I'm 23 and I've got a baby tooth in my mouth still, yeah yeah and it's completely I guess this is so gross <laughs> um my baby tooth is literally rotting out yeah. from the daily throwing up I had to do as well. Yeah. It's been there for a lot. Yeah. yeah. She's been through it. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's really hanging in there for dear life. Yeah, but there's all these dental issues going on and like overcrowding. I've had braces, orthodontic work, everything. But they thought that was normal. Yeah. And it's so not. It's such a rare experience and it, Oh God! I wish they. I wish my dentist and my doctor had like teamed up at a certain point and just gone. There's something going on with this yeah. kid. It's not right. And is this something that perhaps the clinic in Melbourne will be able to help you navigate? I mean, sort of seeking that diagnosis. I'm just really excited to see someone who is a healthcare professional that knows more than I do about myself you know like um I haven't shown I haven't it's really hard not having faith in the people you're actually seeing who have gone through so many years of med school because they don't talk about EDS at med school it's Mm -hmm. kind of like a specialist sort of situation if you go into rheumatology you might learn about it yeah Um, or perhaps like scientists that are Exactly. Like, there are a lot of people with EDS doing a lot of work in the healthcare field. Like, there is a YouTuber, I forget her name, oh my god, but she is actually on the team working to find the candidate gene for EDS. And, like, she's just like, you know, a gold mine of information, but also like the precious gem of the EDS community. Because she's like, she realized what was wrong with her, got the support, got the diagnoses. And then went, I'm going to cure it. Wow. <laughs> well, not cure it, but I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to figure find... this out. Yeah. Yeah. And then she did that. So like, it's going to be so refreshing being able to go somewhere like a hypermobility clinic. Yeah. And them know, like, I don't have to give the whole spiel. I don't have to uh, explain my whole body, everything that goes on every single time. It's yeah. exhausting. It really yeah. is. And, like, even trying to find a therapist and, like, having to repeat your life story a million <laughs> times over, like, it gets pretty exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's, it'll be so nice being able to actually, like, one, have access to what I need 
and to not have to be my own doctor. Yeah. Like, that that will be the biggest kicker. And, like, I hope that this happens to everyone with EDS. Like, they finally have the opportunity to get some help because it can be so alienating and, like, debilitating just having to deal with this on your own because mm-hmm. no one can really comprehend how much is going on. Yep. It's such a multi-system disorder and it really affects you, like, every day, every moment. You have to rethink everything you do with your life. You really do. Yeah. And no one really kind of understands that until they spend more than 24 hours around you. And then they're like, wow, okay, this is a full-time job. Yeah. And especially when there isn't necessarily like a specialist that is accessible to be able to communicate these things. Because I had no idea I had something like this. Yeah. I would never have just shown up to my doctor and be like... I have EDS. Like yeah. The idea, it was, it was the last thing on the list we looked at. Mm-hmm. The absolute last. And it just, thank God we found it when we yeah. did. Like, we went through every possibility of every, like, every possible condition I yeah. could have. And just nothing made sense to the point of everyone giving up. Like, me, doctors, nurses, everything, just being yeah. like, let's just Too sit. basket. Yeah. <laughs> let's just sit, wait, monitor it, and see what's going on. And I'm just like, I can't sit and wait for another two years. No. I can't do it. No. no, and you shouldn't be expected to either. No, should not. Oh my God, no. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode mm-hmm. that you have found something that works for you to treat the symptoms that go along with Absolutely. EDS. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I live in Wellington. It's a pretty progressive place. Yeah. <laughs> um, fresh out of uni too. So like everyone experiments a little bit with recreational cannabis. But I really started doing some research just for like a point of reference, I guess. I have, you know, police officers in the family. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I was very anti-drugs. Yeah. I was like, no one should touch weed. It'll kill you. <laughs> up until I was like literally 18, mm-hmm. I pretty much had that mindset. Like I was very much anti-drugs. And so it's quite shocking that I've kind of yeah. <laughs> made this 180. But I started really looking into the medicinal effects. I would watch a lot of documentaries on the history of cannabis and that sort of thing. And started looking into the science behind it. And it was mainly because one of my friends just said to me one day, you've got a migraine, have a cone. And yeah. I was like, what? No, that'll make me worse. Yeah. Like and so I tried a little bit of cannabis in order to get rid of a migraine. And I cried for three hours because it got rid of it instantly. <gasps> um, wow. Like all of my nausea and vomiting disappeared. Yeah. And I was just, I was fine. And that was just crazy to me. And so I started doing some more research and just thinking like, oh, how can I go about this in a healthy and mildly safe way? Yeah. Started looking into terpenes and kind of the science behind it. So for me, when I, well, going back a bit. So I tried to go the medicinal route. Yeah. And this was like pretty early days of Mm -hmm. medicinal, like regularly accessible medicinal cannabis. You don't have to apply for Ministry of Health funding or anything like that. It's expensive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And my doctor was pretty into the idea because she is a very firm believer in it for anti-inflammatory reasons, pain, all that sort of stuff. And I said to her, I was like, "Uh, cannabis is really helping pain and migraines and it's getting rid of my nausea what can we do medicinally for this? And she was like, I can absolutely give you a prescription. Mm-hmm. Let's just try anything at this point. Yeah. Like she was pretty desperate just for any like way out really. And so she said to me, uh, what I need you to do is go around to a few different pharmacies, get a printout of the price lists of all of the different products available, and then bring it back to me and we can try and figure out yep. what you can afford. Yeah. 
And I was like, what do you mean what I can afford? And she was like, oh, it's expensive. Yeah. So I got a printout and I started looking at all these sheets of paper and all of the prices were different. Same products, different prices. And I realized really quickly that there was absolutely no regulation into how often pharmacies change their price, how much it is, all of that. So I could budget for, say, $500 worth of CBD products per month, which is pretty much what we worked out yet to be for me, Mm dosage-wise, and the fact that I do need it daily. And it was going to be really, really expensive. And there's also no guarantee that those prices will stay that way or that they'll be available full stop. And the way that the prescriptions work is that you have to get a prescription for a very certain product. You can't just get a broad-spectrum medicinal cannabis prescription. It has to be, like, for the Tilray something, something percentage, Mm -hmm. you know, and so if it's not available or if it's too expensive for you, you just kind of have to go without. Yeah. And it doesn't really work. No. And so my GP is a bit of a G and she <laughs> said to me, look, if you feel safe enough to do so and mm. you think you've got it under control, go for the black market stuff. Just yeah. find weed and smoke it. Yeah. And so I started doing my research because I was like, well, if I'm going to do the black market way let's be a little safe about it Mm -hmm. and so I found some very trusted green fairies yeah and I started shopping by strain Mm -hmm. so I personally look for uh caryophylline and myrcene Mm -hmm. as my two favorite terpenes because they are the most closely associated with anti-nausea properties anti-vomiting and also uh, pain and inflammation support insomnia all the stuff that actually works for me. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing a bit of an experiment <laughs> yeah. and I would shop around different terpenes specifically okay. and just see how they affected my body in different ways. Yeah. And I worked out really quickly that if I got anything that wasn't high in caryophylline, it would actually do nothing to right. me. Right. Yeah. It would not help in the slightest. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't help my pain. It might give me a migraine. Yeah. Right. And it would definitely <laughs> don't wouldn't help for nausea, which were the biggest things to me. Mm-hmm. So once I started shopping by terpene, it helped so much. I managed to stop my daily, you know, vomiting and maintain a weight for now coming up almost a year, like six months to a year. Yeah. My pain management is almost completely under control with the tool. So in combination with cannabis, I use like a TENS machine, normal therapy tools, strapping tape, like all of the, you know, usual EDS arsenal toolkit sort of situation but the cannabis has actually been the one thing that targets the symptoms that are actually the most debilitating for me you know it's it hasn't fixed everything Mm -hmm. I still definitely have some severe GI issues going on that need medical attention but it's a band-aid on the wound and it gets me to work yeah and it allows me to have a social life Mm -hmm. I'm also quite lucky because because I started off as kind of a recreational user I have a tolerance where it doesn't really affect me day to day. So yeah. I could be quote unquote stoned out of my mind 24 seven, but no one really clocks onto the fact yeah. that I am just because my tolerance is really high. And I don't have the psychoactive effects anymore. Mm-hmm. It's purely medicinal. Yeah. It affects my body and that's about it. Yeah. So then there's also so many different options. So yeah. like with, CBD in particular, you can get vape juice, you can mm-hmm. take the oils, you can smoke it if you want, that sort of thing. But the big kicker with EDS and cannabis is that they think that, I can't reference any studies right now, but they 
they are there. You yeah. can research it. <laughs> the thing that actually helps the EDS kind of symptoms is actually the THC, yeah. not the CBD. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And I've absolutely experienced that yeah. too. I've tried CBD on its own and it helps a little bit, but yeah. it really you really need the THC and the combination of the correct terpenes and everything. So yeah. on a like blanket level, I don't think weed works for everyone. No, And yeah. I don't think... I think you really have to do your research. You have mm-hmm. to really feel it out and treat it like any other medication. You, it's, you kind of have to work with dosage. You have to work with brand almost, yeah. you know, yeah. like you, you really have to shop around and make mm-hmm. sure that you've got someone super reliable and you're using it in the right products for you. Yeah. But I'm such a huge advocate of not only like legalization, decriminalization of cannabis in New Zealand, but like all the medicinal users, like I think so much more could be done in New Zealand. Yeah. And it really sucks, especially with the referendum. It was such a lost opportunity. It was so close. <laughs> and I really wish they'd spoken and, and um, consulted people with these chronic yeah. issues. The people who actually need it, not yeah. the people who necessarily want it. Because I know that I would not be a daily user yeah. if I didn't have all these conditions. Exactly. Um, and I also don't need it all the time. Yeah. So th- there are days where I'm like, oh, I'm all good. I don't need anything today. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also such a great alternative to opiates. Yes, which absolutely. is yeah, a huge kind of selling point on cannabis legalization and decriminalization is that uh, a lot of people don't need access to opiates or like they don't need to use yeah. opiates full stop if they have access to something more natural and softer. Mm. Which I it's there are so many reasons that we yeah. desperately need it. Yeah, and it's so frustrating, but that's also another reason why Melbourne is my next destination is because yeah. Australia is heading towards this mm-hmm. so much faster than New Zealand yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly could just talk to you for hours and hours so much. and hours and just listening to your story. It's clear how passionate you are about oh, yeah. advocacy work and really helping other people as well. Like, you know, just even you just sharing your story today, it's really clear that you just want other people to be given the tools and the knowledge that they can also support themselves as well. I mean, like the only reason I am in the position I am now where I'm kind of at this point where I can look after myself yeah. and I can continue on and I'm not in, like, you know, struggling 24-7 is because of all these support groups online yeah. and people sharing their stories. Like things like this podcast where I like listen to other people with these conditions, you find so many little life hacks and like ways of going about things, so many products you can try and just different treatment options, but also just like a place where you can vent and talk to someone (laughs) who relates to you. Yeah, It's so important. Like I would, as much as it gets a bit hard repeating your story a million times, I would do it a million more just like, because in my early days, having no idea what was wrong with me, I, I would not have any help now if it wasn't for someone saying I have this yeah and this is what I've yeah got like have you tried it I couldn't I I couldn't thank that you know stranger online more like saved my life absolutely and it's just so important when you share your stories like absolutely yeah why be a closed book you know like (laughs) everyone's struggling let's just like yeah you know make it a little easier yeah and it feels like your journey and your story it's 
it's not really at the end, is it? It feels like you're oh still God, right in the middle yeah. working all of this out. So I'm really excited and please keep in touch. I'd love to know how oh God, Melbourne yeah. goes for you. I'm very big into sharing my struggles yeah. on social media. I'm getting a bit more comfortable with doing that now. Yeah. Now that I have some official answers yeah. and like I have, I think I feel like I have a bit more of a say now that I have a diagnosis. Yeah. And so I have more of a right to talk about it, I think. Like yeah. it's quite hard to just like, talk about struggling without having a reason for it yeah and so I love talking about it on social media and I love finding out that other people have things like me mm-hmm. or just like oh I have a family member who has this yeah. it's like, oh, this is, oh the world becomes a little smaller like you feel less alone as yeah well. oh my god yeah. it's so much easier to go through something like this when there are people who are also doing the exact same thing yeah and I'll make sure that I include in the show notes how people can get in touch with you if they're listening and they're like oh I need a bit of that in my life absolutely (laughs) amazing thank you so much thank you so much for having me yay yay and of course a big thank you to you for listening to another episode of That's So Chronic if you would like to reach out, you can find me over on Instagram or TikTok. I'm at That's So Chronic. And for links to the monthly newsletter, to share your story, or anything that we've talked about today, you can, of course, find them in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps That's So Chronic get into more ears around the world to hopefully spread awareness and, more importantly, hope. See you next week.